trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is not about telling you what to think. I'm not here to give you your marching orders. I'm not here to dictate what is acceptable and what's unacceptable. But I'll tell you what I am doing. I'm encouraging you to question everything that is coming your direction. Whether it's from me or whether it's from any other media source, we live in a time of crisis and actually have for some time. But as you may have noticed, some of those crises are beginning to deepen. And, you know, the single most important duty that you and I have as citizens is to think as clearly and independently as possible during times of crisis. So I am here to help you in that regard and uh, happy to do it as a matter of fact. I've got some great sponsors who help me do this on a daily basis. They include lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, also sewingandquiltingcenter.com, and hslammo.com, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Well, there's, as always, there's a lot of places to begin, and, and I want to start with a, a column from Alan Stevo. This was published earlier today on LewRockwell.com, one of my favorite uh, resources for wrong thinkers. And we start with the observation that there is an immense amount of effort being put forth right now to keep our attention, in fact, to keep the world's attention, focused on Ukraine. It's dominating the news cycle. The the many different uh, news programs and many commentators out there are just hyper-focused on what's happening in Ukraine. Um, last night, for instance, I, I saw my wife turn on the TV, and she brought up some unfamiliar news program. And uh, Because we have a daughter who's living in Europe, she was watching, um, I guess it was one of the European newscasts, you know, the English version of their newscast, to uh, to get an idea of what was going on. And I don't know how to say this nicely, so I'm just going to say it. The propaganda is as bad there as it is anywhere else. And it's hyper-focused on, you know, this is the, the narrative of, of what's happening in Ukraine. And I know it's very tempting at times like this for us to divide ourselves up, you know, along tribal lines and nationalistic lines. And, you know, it's so easy to run on emotion rather than thinking and reasoning and questioning and, and, and sincerely trying to understand what the bigger picture is. So I want to share some thoughts with you from Alan Stevo, who has proven to be one of the great voices of reason throughout the last couple of years. And he still is uh, well-grounded in reality. He says, focus on what matters. But he clarifies, it is not in the Ukraine Now, he says, I've never said to you, pay attention to Sacramento, Springfield, Lansing, or Harrisburg without first taking care of your face, your home, and your community. And he says, you know what? I can promise you this much. Your face, your home, and your community are not all being well handled. Excellence is still out of grasp. It's not yet spreading as it could. The conclusive victories are not yet being won. When that day comes, it will be unmistakable. But he says, similarly, you will not catching me, catch me talking about the need to pay attention to the Ukraine before your face, your family, your home, or your community. 
Now, before you dismiss him as, well, he's just being indifferent. What, a, what an inhuman person. He says, look, I love the Ukraine. I love the people, the culture, the land. In fact, he says, I spent years of my adult life in the region. I, I love the toughness of the Ukraine. It's just one illustration. He says, I love that so many people used to and probably still do travel across the country by train in a third-class glorified cattle car. There's a toughness to that place. And he says, America once knew such toughness. As an example, vast parts of the U.S. with no indoor plumbing existed during the lives of many people who are still alive today. Now, that's almost impossible to imagine for most Americans. Those times before every man was entitled to a spa in his home, a five-blade razor, and as much flourless chocolate lava cake bonbons as he can stomach, delivered 24-7, seemed to provide advantages to society, advantages no longer recognized. In fact, he breaks down a word that uh, we hear, but I don't think we often think about, decadence. You know what the, the root of that is? That which decays. The toughness of America has decayed. Now, Alan Stevo says, do I dislike prosperity? Absolutely not. Prosperity is not a reason for decadence. Prosperity is a reason for increased discipline and vigilance around the most vital qualities of an individual and a culture. He says, weakness of men causes prosperity to lead to decay. Now, he says, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of modernized, comfortable, effete male Ukrainians, but it's not the norm among their men. It's an aberration, as it should be. He says, this very moment as you read this, a Ukrainian has bumped his forehead badly, leaving him with a gash in his eyebrow. And he's not running scared to the medicine cabinet or or the hospital, but he's reaching under his chair or desk for the ever-present bottle and pouring a little vodka over his wound. He'll have a seat, take a swig, let it bleed a little, and clean it up after it clots. Now, he says, in contrast, in the United States, how many seconds would it be before someone suggests that he go to the hospital? How many minutes would it be before someone perhaps even calls an ambulance to rush him to the emergency room? Doing so costs someone a few thousand dollars, occupies the partial attention of five or ten members of the medical staff, and perhaps worst of all, eats up half a day in frivolity. Alan Stevo says the Ukraine is a tough and beautiful culture of strong men and feminine women, as is Russia. And he says America can learn a great deal about that culture from that culture about individual fortitude. Now I do say that culture. Knowing as much as I do about a place, he says it's very hard to separate the Ukraine from Russia. Rather than having a strong cultural uniqueness, the Ukraine is almost an in-between place. Culturally benefiting or culturally befitting the name the Ukraine, the borderlands. Funny how language tells you so much about what you need to know if you just listen to the wisdom that a previous generation captured in words. So he breaks down what the borderlands refers to. Lviv, Russian, Lvov, Polish, Lwow, German, Lemberg, in the west of Ukraine, is caught culturally between the present day and the influence of the Lithuanian and Polish empires of old. Kiev, in contrast, is about as Russian and as modern a city as can be. In the days before the Maiden color revolution led by the meddling United States, he says, I strolled through the streets of Kiev looking for young people who could tell me the difference between a Russian and a Ukrainian, and whether the person I was speaking to was Russian or Ukrainian. He says, I was unsuccessful in getting that answered with much more than quizzical questions back. 
Now, you may say all manner of things about the history of how that came to be and why no one under 40 years old in Kiev who I encountered was able to easily say how they identified nationally. But he says, regardless of the past, the truth is, that was the situation before Maidan. They were confused about that such a distinction would even exist enough for this foreigner to ask about it. He says, that's what my man on the street research told me. There was hardly a Ukrainian national national sentiment in the capital city of the Ukraine. Now, a bunch of extreme leftist totalitarians in America are waving a national flag from a region they cannot begin to comprehend. They're reading cherry-picked stories, and it's so tempting to tell them what idiots they are. But he says, do not bite. They are idiots, but don't even bring it up. They buy into bad science. They behave extreme, COVID, global warming, economics, etc. They buy into pat narratives about complex places they have no clue about, whether it's Ukraine, inner city America, George Floyd riots, and they behave extreme. Their hallmark is their ignorance alongside their extreme behavior. That is who they are and who they choose to be. Alan Stevo says some would say, well, what else can you expect from a culture who are not raised by men, but by absent, preoccupied, or otherwise castrated males? And that can be true. However, your childhood does not determine your future, not a single second of it. Only by either your choice or your neglect can the shortcomings of your childhood haunt you through life. He says a man, who, a man <clears throat> reborn is a man who parts from the past. Every minute in this country, a new man is determining it is time to be reborn. And with immediacy, that change happens. But if you choose to dwell in your childhood, in the mistakes of the past, in the harms of yesteryear, you choose not to be reborn as a man. COVID was that. Ukraine is that. Their self-occupation in an identity of ignorance plus emotion is so central to their lives. This is how a male like that chooses to live his life. And he says, do not engage such a fool unless he makes the mistake of daring to stand in your way. Okay, I got to hit the pause button here because we are fast approaching our commercial break. So let's pay a couple of bills. We'll come back and finish up Alan Stevo's commentary. Did you catch that, though? You don't need to confront the people who are behaving idiotically. It's not your job to fix them. Frankly, you really even shouldn't give them that much of your attention, and you most certainly should not care what names they are calling you or what they may be saying about you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Before I continue with Alan Stevo's wonderful commentary, let me first uh, throw just a little suggestion your way. If you have been uh, looking for a perfect opportunity to jump on a great food storage package, this is the one. Lifesavingfood.com. I link to them in my show notes. And here's the package. 45% off ReadyWise food. And in particular, there's a, there's a great package here. This is, uh, this is two buckets now, these are uh, buckets with 120 servings each. This is a th- full 30-day meal supply for one person. 45% off the regular price. 
I think uh, Kindle is selling this for about 340 bucks. It has breakfast entrees. It has regular entrees. And it is a remarkable deal. 45% off. 25-year shelf life. I mean, if you, and it's, it's grab-and-go kind of convenience. All you have to do is add water. So maybe think about uh, trotting over to the uh, website. There's a link provided in my show notes. Oh, I actually got the price wrong. Here we go, $329.99. 330 for a 30-day food supply. It's a great way to get started if you're just getting started. If you already have a great program, here's a great way to add to it. That's lifesavingfood.com. All right, back to Alan Stevo's commentary. Focus on what matters, and, and his point being, what matters most is not in the Ukraine. He says, focus not on the denazification of Kiev or the imperialist ambitions of Russia. Focus on the denazification of your community and the imperialism that your state seeks to exercise over your home. He says, the Ukraine is a distraction. They're going to be just fine. They do not need your Bitcoin or your attention. They do not need your prayers or your weapons. The world in your immediate vicinity needs all of that. The world that you can impact needs all of that. Ukraine is going to be fine. He says the Slavs of that region will continue to sustain themselves and perhaps even to thrive as long as the planet exists. You, on the other hand, are in the midst of a faltering culture, a breath away from extinction. Now, he says, the regime was never able to close the churches in the USSR, not even during the most brutal atheist communist oppression. You know why that is? The people would not allow it. That is a culture with some powerful individual boundaries, even under the most oppressive of regimes. But that's not what happened in America. In this regard, America in 2020 was worse than the USSR in the ugly times of 1934 or 1951 alike. Some American churches remain closed to this day. And he says, please leave your church if it closed. Please get off Zoom worship. Please go in person to support a bold lion of a pastor each Sunday, one who never closed. Alan Stevo says they were never able to mask the population in Russia to the extent that America was masked or vaxxed, especially not with an mRNA vaccine. It is the Wild West in so many ways. It is such in such a place, he says, individual family and community, all being grounded in a strong sense of what is right, is so necessary for survival. I think this may be another way of, of encouraging people. Lift where you're standing. And he says, you must not live that way any longer. Just get the mask off you, off of your family. Not once in a while, but every single time. Do not put it on for the school. Do not put it on for a job interview. Do not put it on just to get through the door. Don't put it on for an airplane ride. Don't put it on just to visit grandma. <clears throat> he says, do whatever it takes to never again be that weak-willed coward. No matter what the past held, he says, be born, be born anew. And if you cannot, the world will eat you up and you will not see the damage your acquiescence has caused in your own life until it's too late to remedy. You see, we're not in the midst of a kinetic war. We are in the middle of a psychological war. And the terrain that's being fought over is your mind. Through the enemy winning on the battlefield of your mind, your family, your home, and your community can be captured. It is the war is the nature rather of a psychological war to distract you and lull you into the fact that you face no kinetic war, so all must be well. 
But he says, be distracted and you lose. It's that simple. One battle at a time, the distracted lose. Now, if you can't find a good church, or if you can't find otherwise how to, if you can't otherwise get yourself good, nourishing teaching from somewhere, teaching that will feed the soul of even an atheist and will provide wisdom even to an atheist. If you cannot get yourself good teaching from somewhere, if you cannot draw bold boundaries in your life, if you cannot make the tough stands, he asks, what are you worth as a man? Are you a paycheck? Women make more than men in so many ways. Are you the carrier of male gametes? Those are for sale online. If you're not the protector of something, the leader of something, the restorer of something, then what are you as a man? And I love this next little bit of tough love here. He says the Ukraine does not need you. Russia does not need you. It's fair to say the government you pay your taxes to has done enough harm in that region already. More American help is the last thing anyone there needs. But here's the most important part. You need your attention. Your home needs your attention. Your community needs your attention. In that order. Only in that order. Home, community, Well, first you, then home, then community. Do not let your local school board meeting be distracting Ukraine Ukraine to you as your home cries out for you in need. Alan Stevo says everything around us will fall apart slowly or it will fall apart quickly, but it is falling apart as we speak and something new will replace it. He says a new America needs your full attention at being the best man you can be, ushering out the old sick and dead parts of the culture and defending that which is worth defending, nurturing, reintroducing, and building anew. You can be no man if you are obsessed with the Ukraine, yet neglectful of yourself, your family, and your home. A male, perhaps, but not a man. The frivolous will obsess over frivolity. That is, after all, why they are called the frivolous. And he says, it does not escape me that the least manlike, least admirable, least trustworthy of males in our society refuse to focus on the world immediately around them. A world they can take ownership of and impact. Yes, to fritter away time and energy is exactly what can be expected of a frivolous person in a frivolous time and a frivolous culture. But he says, that doesn't trouble me. It is to my benefit for the frivolous to be distracted in frivolity. Why would I want to expend energy opening their eyes? The impact of that would only be to encourage them to fight me in the battles that matter. Let the Ukraine be the opiate of the frivolous. That's good. That is really good. Do not let it be an opiate of he who matters. Do not let it be a distraction to you. Do not let it be another way to lull a lion back to sleep. And at the same time, he says, it is pretty crazy what's going on in the Ukraine, isn't it? All this and more will be ginned up to distract you from a toxic culture in its death throes. And it will get crazier yet as the regime tries to keep itself alive. This is what happens with every crumbling regime. This is what happens with every scared person nearing his last breath. And then it all just ends. As anticlimatically as you can imagine, so suddenly and naturally that any reasonable onlooker is left asking, was "Was that really it? What was all the fuss about? This is how frightened lives come to an end. And that is how illegitimate regimes topple. So he says, be filled with faith, not fear. Be filled with values, not distraction. Be filled with the authority that you have over the space around you, not someplace so foreign to you in which you have no authority. Do you see what's happening, he asks? If you can be convinced to take your eyes off that which matters, you lose all authority and power to operate. 
If you focus on that which matters, the regime crumbles. Accountability is had, a new culture is born out of the wreck, and life goes on. You get to choose life or death in every moment of your walk through this life. He says you get to walk in that which makes your life dead, or you get to walk in that which makes your life meaningful. And Alan Stevo says, I want you to choose life. But it's not up for me or anybody else. So what will be your choice? Because you have a powerful enemy who wants to distract you from that which matters, in fact, needs to distract you from that which matters, in order to ensure his very survival. Your focus brings his destruction. Your focus frees you, your home, and your community. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm just, I'm still a little bit giddy over that uh, Alan Stevo commentary. And it rings so true. So I echo his call, don't be distracted from things that really matter. Now, I granted, I'm, I'm about to distract you with something else here, but I think there's a difference between just, you know, marinating in, uh, in whatever's dominating the news cycle and exercising awareness, but never forgetting that, uh, you know, who you are and what you stand for is much more important than who or what you are against. And I'm guessing that if you are one of the people who has found this show, and if you resonate with, you know, the information that's given here, whether you agree or not, at least you're, you're thinking, well, okay, this is another way to, to see the world or get a little bit broader perspective, a, a, a better vantage point than I previously had. You can do with this information as, as you will. But you're probably someone who's uh, really not waiting to be told, here's what you have to think. Now repeat it back to me. Very good. Now run along and play. It's insulting that we're treated like that, but that describes how many of the information sources around us treat us. So I'm grateful for writers like James Bovard. No nonsense. In fact, uh, no nonsense combined with actual wisdom and many, many years and even decades of experience working in and around and, and in spite of the, the beast of Washington, D.C., He's got some great insights. And in fact, I've got a great commentary from him. Uh, It starts with the question here. Why does the state need to do so much in secret? Why is it that government requires so much secrecy in order to do what it does? Got a great article here about how the Supreme Court should end the state secrets shield. Jim Bovard asks, will federal law enforcement agencies ever be forced to disclose their abuses of American citizens? The Supreme Court could answer that question in its decision on a potentially landmark case it heard last week regarding surveillance of Muslim communities in California. Though the case may be decided on narrow grounds, he says, it involves a legal Pandora's box that has spawned and shielded the worst abuses of the post-9-11 era. Beginning in 2006, the FBI sent Craig Montiel, a former Drug Enforcement Administration informant, into mosques in, in Southern California to gather evidence against Muslims at worship. His FBI handlers gave Montiel permission to sleep with Muslim women he targeted and to secretly tape record their pillow talk. He also placed a recording device to covertly tape Muslim therapy sessions. 
National Public Radio noted the surveillance yielded no results and proved a huge a huge embarrassment to the Bureau after Montiel went public in 2012 to denounce his own behavior and the FBI. Montiel encouraged mosque members to engage in bombing and other violence. He was part of an army of 15,000 FBI informants recruited after 9-11 who fueled persuasive entrapment operations. Trevor Aronson, author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism, estimates that only about 1% of the 500 people charged with international terrorism offenses in the decade after 9-11 were bona fide threats. 30 times as many were induced by the FBI to behave in ways that prompted their arrest. Now, the FBI has been able to trample Americans' rights and privacy because it shrouds its abuses. And the Supreme Court case hinges on the state secrets doctrine, something that the court created in a 1953 case involving the cover-up of the crash of a B-29 bomber. The Air Force said that any disclosure of the case would expose vital national security secrets, and the court deferred to the military. Now, half a century later, the government declassified the official report, which contained no national security secrets but proved negligence caused the crash. The case the Supreme Court heard last Monday was a class-action lawsuit against the FBI for allegedly spying on Muslims because of their uh, religion. The justices heard lawyers disputing whether the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, could be invoked as a workaround to avoid the total lockdown of information by the state secrets doctrine. He says, even though the FBI targeting of Muslims became public knowledge when the informant blew the whistle, the FBI still claims exposing other details would endanger national security, and thus that the case must be dismissed. Anilan Arulanatham, the lawyer for the Muslims who brought the lawsuit, commented, the government is saying we didn't target people solely on the basis of religion. Beyond that, we can't say anything because of state secrets, and therefore the whole case has to be dismissed. Now, Jim Bovard says, look, the state secrets doctrine was rarely invoked until this century. The Bush administration invoked state secrets in almost 50 cases, far more than all previous administrations combined. Bush administration lawyers played the state secrets card to seek blanket dismissal of every case challenging the constitutionality of specific ongoing government programs. That's according to a study by the bipartisan Constitution Project. When National Security Agency wiretapping was challenged in federal appeals court, Judge Harry Pregerson groused in 2007 that the bottom line is the government declares something as a state secret. That's the end of it. The king can do no wrong. Judges presumed that the Bush administration was acting in good faith even after its false statements on illegal wiretapping were exposed. Edward Snowden's leak of NS, leaks of NSA documents and Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court rulings proved the feds had created a surveillance state that illegally vacuumed up the email and phone records of tens of millions of innocent Americans. So Bovard says the state secrets doctrine is a get-out-of-jail-free card for torturers. The Bush administration used claims of state secrets to prohibit torture victims from disclosing to their defense attorneys the specific interrogation methods they suffered, as he reported in a 2007 piece for TAC. A federal appeals court slammed the Obama administration's use of state secrets, 
According to the government's theory, the judiciary should effectively cordon off all secret government actions from judicial scrutiny, immunizing the CIA and its partners from the demands and the limits of the law. The Obama administration invoked state secrets doctrine to justify refusing to disclose the standards it had used to place Americans and others on the assassination list of suspected terrorists. Now, Jim Bovard says the state secrets doctrine provides a license for federal agencies to lie to their victims and to federal judges. In 2005, a Stanford University graduate student, Ranina Ibrahim, went to San Francisco International Airport to catch a flight to Hawaii. Instead, she was handcuffed and locked up overnight because her name was on the no-fly list. Now, she was eventually permitted to fly to her home country, Malaysia, but was prohibited from returning to the U.S., so she sued to discover why she was blacklisted, launching an eight-year battle that entailed more than $3 million in legal costs. Attorney General Eric Holder warned that disclosure that an individual is not a subject of an FBI counterterrorism investigation could likewise reasonably be expected to cause significant harm to national security. Now, Holder also swore the feds were not invoking state secrets to conceal administrative error or to prevent embarrassment. In 2014, federal judge William Alsop obliterated the official storyline when he disclosed that Ibrahim had been banned from flying simply because an FBI agent in 2004 checked the wrong box on a terrorism investigation form. The feds carried out a nine-year cover-up to preserve America's blind faith in FBI paperwork. Now, Bovard says the Biden administration is championing the same blanket secrecy previously invoked by the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, a former Bush administration lawyer who championed the state secrets doctrine as foundational to the national security of the country, urged his colleagues not to make a broad drive-by ruling on the massively important issue. Chief Justice John Roberts talked as if the state secrets doctrine was on a moral and legal par with habeas corpus even though the justices got snookered by the Pentagon when they concocted the doctrine. Other justices signaled that they favored a narrow ruling that would remand the case to a lower court for further deliberation and more years of legal wrangling. So the current case is a superb opportunity to debunk that pernicious legal doctrine that has become a protective wall around the worst abuses of the war on terror. The state secrets doctrine presumes government knows best and no one else is entitled to know. Bovard says not only are the feds above the law, they don't have to explain why they're above the law. As author Barry Siegel noted, in the vast majority of cases where state secrets are invoked, judges rule blindly without looking at the disputed documents underlying the state secrets claims. They choose instead to trust the government, the ultimate act of faith. Eventually, instead of a good excuse for breaking the law, all that's necessary is to claim that an excuse exists even if the excuse is secret. Government must be presumed innocent as long as it refuses to divulge the evidence of its guilt. Well, justice delayed as justice denied is apparently irrelevant when FBI prerogatives are at stake, says Jim Bovard. In so far as the Supreme Court embraces legal mummeries that to permit hiding federal crimes, well, the court is betraying democracy. Only fools expect government under the law when federal officials can secretly entrap and persecute other Americans. Well, there's an issue you probably didn't know so much about, and now you have a much better understanding. I've got a link to the article in today's show notes. You'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back right after this. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, want to say a couple quick things about uh, the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. They are one of my great sponsors. And if you are someone you know, enjoy sewing, either as a hobby or maybe you just, you know, really enjoy. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's something you use to make a living. This is the place you should talk to when it comes to getting your, your sewing machines, sergers, uh, uh, long arm quilting machines, the whole nine yards, embroidery machines. I mean, it's astonishing what you can do. And if you've ever, if you don't, if you don't appreciate sewing, I can suggest uh, maybe what you need to do is just, first of all, sew a button on by hand. It seems so simple, right? Well, how could it be so difficult? But to do it correctly, I mean, to really make it, uh, make it stay on and look good, it takes skill. And you'd be shocked at what, uh, what can be done with the computerized machines and the right training. Here's the point, though. Sewing and Quilting Center can help you from the purchase of the machine to training you and how to use it, all the supplies you'll need to get the most out of it, and they can even service it when it needs servicing. There's a link to their business in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Give it a click and uh, get better acquainted with them. Tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. Well, heaven help anyone who commits an unforgivable offense, unforgivable offense, that is, in the eyes of the Twitter mob. Got a great column here from Brian Kaplan. This uh, came from everythingvoluntary.com, and it's just titled Unforgivable. I think this is one you, uh, you may want to check out. He says, suppose there's a debate about the character of a public figure. Supporters will usually marshal a long list of positives, but detractors are more likely to present one horrifying fact. A fact horrifying enough to get onlookers to shake their heads and say, unforgivable. And if this rhetorical tactic works, the detractors instantly win the debate. If you've done one unforgivable thing, you're a villain, no matter how else you spend your life. So... Just for instance, in the 80s, the top unforgivable offense was a Nazi past. And he says, I mean that literally. If someone could prove that you ever belonged to the Nazi party, your name was forever mud. When the Cold War was still ongoing, the U.S. put Austrian President Kurt Waldheim on a war criminal watch list. And almost every person in the world declared him persona non grata. The only acceptable defense was and remains age. Former Hitler youth could still rise to high places, including the papacy. But other unforgivable offenses in this era included explicit anti-black racism, severe child abuse, and selling secrets to the Soviets, and perhaps Satanism, too. When people wanted to discredit Iron Maiden or Ozzy Osbourne, they'd accuse them of devil worship, unforgivable to many parents, though that rarely deterred their kids. Nowadays, as you may have noticed, the list of unforgivable offenses has grown much longer. See J.K. Rowling. So what's the best way to understand this unforgivable heuristic? Brian Kaplan says economic theorists will likely gravitate to a signaling model. If a single damning fact conclusively confirms your bad type, then it makes sense to diligently hunt for such facts and publicize them when you find them. Now, this isn't always crazy. If you discover that a teacher murdered one child, he probably shouldn't work with children, even if his performance was otherwise exemplary. And the same goes for the Auschwitz commandant. If you ran a death camp, 
it uh, makes little difference what else you did with your life. Now, the main problem with signaling analysis, he says, though, is that a large share of unforgivable offenses are trivial. People get ostracized for unforgivable tweets every day. And most of those tweets plainly do far less harm than, say, punching a stranger in a bar brawl or cheating on your wife. The sheer randomness is also striking. When the media says famous person X said Y, they almost never bother to ask, well, how many other people also said Y today? If saying Y actually revealed definitive information, you would try to find all the Y-sayers and ostracize the whole lot of them, not just join the dogpile of the day. So what's the alternative to the signaling story? Hysteria and hurting. Most allegedly unforgivable offenses are basically uninformative. But virtually all allegedly unforgivable offenses make at least a few people temporarily but intensely angry. Now, usually the anger just fizzles out. But if the few temporarily but intensely angry people are well-connected or lucky, other people join the herd until it hits critical mass and explodes. Most herd members probably barely care about the original offense, but when a cruelty party starts, they rush to join the festivities. So the lesson, if someone appeals to the unforgivability to instantly win a debate, they're not necessarily wrong. Once in a long while, a single offense really is ultra-informative. Most of the time, however, the unforgivable heuristic is way off base. The single damning thing says a lot about the pettiness and conformity of the accusing, but it says next to nothing about the character of the accused. So this is actually a pretty good exercise in, you know, uh, helping to vet and and to, to use some discretion as to where is my outrage going to go today? And first of all, I hope you're one of those people who doesn't define themselves by what outrages them. Because right now, most mass media, most social media is nothing more than a delivery system for the outrage of the day. And as we've all seen in the last week and a half, that outrage can switch very, very quickly. So if people are chanting in unison about something, yeah, it's okay to notice it, but probably not a good thing to give it too much of your attention. Now, this brings us to a little bit trickier situation, though. What if you are the person who has committed something unforgivable? And when I say unforgivable, I don't mean that you were a death camp commandant or that you murdered a child But let's say that you tweeted something insensitive or you repeated something that was insensitive or you failed to show enough anger and outrage when everybody else was chanting in unison. How do you handle it when the when the mob starts coming after you? Okay, I don't know if I'm I'm probably not a very good person to give advice on this, because frankly, everybody who has ever heard me or met me just loves me and, and has never criticized me. What? Stop laughing. <laughs> okay. No, I've I've experienced criticism, but but really, all things considered, it's pretty mild. And I say that as someone who has had, you know, at, at various times, people who literally would follow me from place to place. Anywhere, anything I wrote was published, you know, these, these critics would readily be there. Uh-huh. I'm here to prove him wrong. I'm here to flex, you know, and show you what a, what a creep he is. And, and that's okay. It it took some time, but I actually came to see it as a bit of a compliment. Because people, look, nobody's going to follow you around and criticize you. Nobody is going to make you uh, a focus of their attention unless they see you as some kind of an authority figure. 
So if, if you draw that kind of attention, even if they're being particularly nasty, even if they're being uh, particularly deceptive and, and deceitful in how they go about describing you and portraying you to the public, the bottom line is you are the one living rent-free in their head. And you do not need to reciprocate by giving them space in yours. But that's a tough thing for a lot of people because a lot of people still care. Most, most of us still care what others think about us. And for you to be a person who really does not give a flying flip about what other people care, it, it sounds like that's synonymous with, well, I'm just a really uncaring person who's very self-centered or narcissistic and I cannot be wrong. That's not what I'm describing here. It's just that if you want to be free, if you really want to be able to live your life, follow your values and live up to your values, speak your mind, the first thing you're going to have to do is stop caring what other people think about you. You're going to have to stop looking around you for the approval of the crowd. And that's hard. And I don't know if you've had the experience of having to stand virtually alone or sometimes literally alone on a subject when everybody in the room is in disagreement with you. But it's really kind of an exhilarating feeling. And here's the cool thing about it. You don't have to be, you know, defiant, you know. You don't have to to give the, the Martin Luther, here I stand speech. You can be humble, but you can be absolutely immovable even though the mob is insisting you have to chant along with us. But it all starts with learning to trust yourself, trust your judgment, and above all, don't give a flying flip about what other people think about you. Now, see, not everybody's going to step up and, and go out there and be a very high-profile, you know, influencer in, on social media or, you know, some kind of a, a media star. You don't need to. You don't need to be deeply in the public eye to benefit from this ability to just stand up for yourself and not care what other people around you are saying. In fact, uh, one of the best things of, of advice that I ever received was um, you'll, you'll be free the day that you stop caring what other people think about you. In fact, you need to start regarding it as what other people think about me. That's none of my business. That doesn't mean that you go around and you just disregard everybody else's feelings and you don't run roughshod over them. It just means that you trust yourself enough that once you have committed to the truth, you're not going to be easily moved because someone starts calling you names or telling you you're bad. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program that is in relentless pursuit of clarity. It's a never-ending quest. Why do we give such high priority to clarity? Because when someone has absolute clarity about who they are and what they stand for, they become 
a force for good in this world. They become an immovable object in the face of a, a tsunami of irrationality and sometimes hysteria that is carried forward by the unthinking crowd. Now, does that sound like you're being pretty harsh on the crowd there, Brian? But all I'm saying is whatever the crowd is going through doesn't need to include you. You don't need to be swept along with them. And even though it, it takes a little bit of courage to, to stand up against the crowd, Know that you're doing the right thing, and, and, and above all, know that you are not alone. By the way, I have some wonderful sponsors who make the program possible. I'd like to recognize them. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, MonticelloCollege.org, and LifesavingFood.com. Well, recent events in the Utah legislature over a, a citizen who showed up for a hearing wearing a shirt that said we the people and uh, subsequently uh, found himself uh, in handcuffs and in custody uh, thanks to the the highway patrol which provides security at the capitol it's got a lot of people thinking about uh, wow is it just me or is the political class getting a little twitchy about the citizenry i mean they really seem to have some concerns and i don't think it's because the citizenry is somehow becoming irrational and oafish and, you know, threatening, and they're the ones who are out of line. I think it's really more a matter of we have a political class, and apparently this is true at many levels, including at the state and sometimes even at the local level, who forget that they are operating at the consent and at the whim of the people who elected them. In other words, political power originates with we the people. And it just shocks me that, uh, that uh, you know, a legislator or legislators would find themselves offended that the people would assert that authority, you know, in, in a public meeting, in a public place. I mean, this is, this is an interesting showdown, and we've seen a lot of uh, areas of friction through the last couple of years over various COVID measures and whatnot. But politicians need to be reminded that their temporary authority originates with us and that they are servants rather than masters. Got a great piece here from J.B. Shirk. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. It's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? He says, not so many years ago, a few people in the West were speaking or writing about freedom. Although civil rights battles have existed in the United States for as long as there's been a united country, Americans for several decades have more or less consigned to the pages of history the great struggles pitting freedom against tyranny. Once the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Cold War came to an end, the hard-fought wars for liberty appeared won. But he says this misplaced confidence that freedom once obtained will remain secure without continuing sacrifice has been ruinous. As with any boxing match where one pugilist stops fighting while the other continues slugging away, Friends of Freedom have found themselves getting pummeled by growing state tyranny ever since. So Freedom may have won the war, but it certainly has lost the peace. Shirk says nowhere has this been more obvious than in the way the United States and its Western allies have responded to the COVID panic of the past two years. Almost immediately after government health officials began furiously ringing emergency alarm bells, politicians just as furiously began stripping citizens of their protected rights. Now, he says the speed with which officials dispensed with the most basic building blocks of any free society, things like free speech, freedom of association, the rights to travel and earn a living according to free will, 
has been staggering. Censorship and the government's war on misinformation have replaced discussion and debate. Government mandates have cataloged and controlled citizens' movements. Government permission has become required to go back to school or work. And he says the near-universal conclusion from presidents and prime ministers, congressmen and members of parliament, has been that rights and freedoms simply disappear when those in power decree it so. What a travesty. J.B. Shirk says as Republican is as repugnant as Western government responses have been to COVID. Traditional friends of freedom, freedom rather, have been equally disheartening. Civil rights groups have remained silent while the Bill of Rights is trampled, or worse, they've encouraged the government's abusive tyranny as in the best interest of the common good. Journalists have continued to prove their worthlessness in keeping government institutions in check by refusing to question let alone investigate the facts health agencies assert or the assert the effectiveness of blunt force government-imposed solutions. In fact, he says the Globe and Mail has gone so far as to demonize the ugly side of freedom embraced by those who simply want the state to leave them alone. And perhaps most disappointing of all, church leaders have, with few exceptions, abandoned their flocks by submitting to lockdowns and other unconstitutional bars against religious gatherings in the misguided belief that civil authorities must be unquestioningly obeyed. Now, J.B. Shirk says it's been clear that too many places of worship were unwilling to stand up for the natural rights delivered to us by the authority of a higher power when the authorities of so many mundane powers came knocking with billy clubs and harsh words. Fortunately, many people of faith have witnessed the tyranny of the last two years and will never forget what they've seen. He says, for all the harm the China virus has caused the world, it has had one solid salutary effect. It has crystallized for hundreds of millions of people around the globe how little respect even Western governments afford to natural, unalienable civil rights. When Joe Biden was pressed last autumn about his administration's enforcing vaccine mandates against the will of many Americans, he actually mocked the idea that citizens in the land of the free should possibly have the freedom to refuse the government's demands that they inject a foreign substance into their bodies. In what's left of his mind, it was simply absurd that anybody could have the right to make a personal health decision that contradicts the state's official science. Now, of course, as all Americans have witnessed over the last year, the science has been in constant and ever-changing flux. So when Joe hails the authority of science, he is really hailing the authority of government force. Nothing more. Obey, because we said so. Shirk says Western government's raw power and their clear disdain for natural rights have been one too many punches for traditional defenders of freedom to ignore. And like a boxer unconscious on the mat provided with a whiff of smelling salts, Freedom fighters have come jumping back to life. Should we call this a spiritual awakening, a rebirth for the cause of liberty, a renewed struggle between good and evil, freedom and tyranny once more? J.B. Shirk says, I think we are witnessing all these things. Far from the lessons of pacifism and submission to civil authorities that some church leaders taught, he says, I have always believed that those who would wage war against God's natural law make enemies of God's faithful. And this has been the resounding conclusion of some of America's most formidable fighters, too. When suffragist leader Susan B. Anthony positively voted the Republican ticket in the 1972 presidential election, New York arrested and tried her for illegally casting a vote. 
Now, which do you think would surprise uneducated Democrats more? That New York once prosecuted illegal voting or that the great women's rights stalwart was a Republican? Upon being tried and convicted by a jury of men, Judge Hunt sentenced her to a fine of $100 and asked if she had anything to say for her conduct. Susan B. Anthony replied that she would never pay a penny of the unjust claim, declaring, and I shall earnestly and persistently continue to urge all women to the practical recognition of the old revolutionary maxim that resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Now, Anthony was uh, following in the tradition of many great Americans who understood the fight for human freedom to be in the service of God's will. When Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson were appointed during the summer of 1776 to design a national seal for the newly independent American colonies, Franklin and Jefferson both suggested a scene depicting the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, albeit one that portrayed Moses as forcefully acting rather than passively receiving deliverance from harm. From the committee's notes on the seal comes this description. Moses standing on the shore and extending his hand over the sea, thereby causing the same to overwhelm Pharaoh, who is sitting in an open chariot, a crown on his head, and a sword in his hand. Rays from a pillar of fire in the clouds reaching to Moses to express that he acts by the command of deity. Motto, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Although most of the committee's work was eventually redone, Thomas Jefferson was so taken by Franklin's proposed motto that he used it for his own personal seal later in life. J.B. Shirk says, look, if the two years of pandemic tyranny have taught us anything, it's this. Governments should be terrified of infringing their citizens' natural rights, not smugly self-assured that those rights can be watered down whenever expedient. We've also learned that no victory can ever be celebrated as permanent. So roll up your sleeves. We've still got some heavy lifting to do. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Listen, if you are finding value in the information that I share with you on a daily basis, I understand not everybody has time to sit down and listen to both hours of the show. Maybe you catch me on your commute, or maybe you just uh, you know catch the podcast when you have a little bit of downtime. If you want to check out the show notes, though, for yourself, I always provide links, and uh, in those links you will find a wealth of information to help you better understand the world around us. Now, you can subscribe simply by going to my website, thebrianhideshow.com. When you uh, click on the subscribe button, I will send a copy of my show notes to your email inbox. All I'm going to ask for is your email address, which I will not sell and I will not give to anybody else. That stays just between you and me. But it's a great resource for people who are really diligently trying to get a handle on what's going on around us. And, of course, there's no implication by by clicking on the show notes or anything like that that, you know, you're going to agree with what I have to say. It's simply a matter of uh, I want you to have access to this information. And and if it makes sense, great. Embrace it. If it doesn't, you know, discard it and continue moving on. Well, speaking of good information, the speed with which COVID guidance has changed is simply remarkable. In fact, I'm surprised there aren't attorneys, you know, offering to uh, go after you know, uh, those who've received whiplash, you know, from the quick, whoa, wait, that shift in direction was so fast. It's kind of suspicious, too, how quickly it all shifted. I, I'm still more convinced this was not about the science. This was more about polling numbers, but that's a story for another time. 
In the meantime, John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education describes what we can learn from the CDC changing its COVID risk formula for apparently non-scientific reasons. He says on February 25th, the CDC made its expected announcement that it was updating its framework to monitor and contain COVID-19. According to CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, we're in a stronger place today as a nation with more tools to protect ourselves and our communities from COVID-19. Like vaccination, boosters, broader access to testing, availability of new high-quality masks, accessibility to new treatments, and improved ventilation. Most media headlines focused on the CDC's relaxed mask guidelines, which advised that most Americans could ditch masks. But how the CDC arrived at this conclusion has received little scrutiny. Miltimore says, as many people likely noticed, the CDC changed its mask guidance even though COVID cases and COVID mortality remain high. As of March 1st, daily new cases stood at roughly 60,000 based on its seven-day rolling average, which is significantly higher than last summer and virtually identical to one year ago. Meanwhile, about 1,600 Americans continue to die each day of COVID-19. That's according to government data, a figure that, again, is exponentially higher than last summer and similar to a year ago. Walensky explained the health agency's reasoning in her call with reporters. Walensky said, according to the transcript, with widespread population immunity, the overall risk of severe disease is now generally lower. Now, as the virus continues to circulate in our communities, we must focus our metrics beyond just cases in the community and direct our efforts toward protecting people at high risk from severe illness and preventing COVID-19 from overwhelming our hospitals and healthcare systems, end quote. Now, Miltimore says there are two takeaways here. The first is that Walensky's call to direct efforts toward protecting people at high risk for severe illness Sounds a bit like the focused protection strategy many public health experts and epidemiologists have been advocating all along, some of whom were labeled fringe scientists by the government's top infectious disease bureaucrats. Second, it's worth examining how Walensky reached this conclusion. During the call, Dr. Greta Massetti of the CDC noted that 70% of Americans are in areas with low or medium COVID-19 community levels. Now, just days before, however, the CDC data showed the vast majority of U.S. counties were suffering from high transmission. And he, by the way, includes the the graphics to show you this. And then virtually overnight, most of the U.S. suddenly was in the low or medium category. Now, Massetti explains the CDC simply changed the formula it used to measure community transmission or updated metrics in this framework, as she says. A community's COVID-19 level is determined by a combination of three pieces of information, Massetti explained. New hospitalizations for COVID-19, current hospital beds occupied by COVID-19 patients or hospital capacity, and new COVID-19 cases. So by simply changing its formula to include hospitalizations and hospital capacity, the CDC took the vast majority of the U.S. from a state of high community transmission to low or moderate. Also, the color red is conspicuously absent. Now, most people are likely not angry that the CDC changed its COVID risk formula. Those changes are likely going to allow most Americans to resume life in a somewhat normal fashion again, without being forced to show vaccine passports to eat in a restaurant or wear a mask or go to yoga class or run to a grocery store. Numerous surveys show this increasingly is what Americans want. 
A recent Yahoo News YouGov poll showed 46% of respondents believed Americans should learn to live with the virus and get back to normal. While only 43% said we need to do more to vaccinate, wear masks, and test. An Echelon Insights poll showed an even stronger inclination to stop restrictions, with 55% of voters saying that COVID should be treated as an endemic disease that will never fully go away, compared to just 38% of voters who said COVID should be treated as a public health emergency. Meanwhile, a Monmouth University poll found 70% of Americans agreed with this statement. It's time we accept COVID is here to stay, and we just need to get on with our lives. Now, that same poll also showed sharp drops in support for vaccine mandates, social distancing, and mask mandates. New York Times writer Nate Cohn observed uh, something important about the recent polling and the American mood. He says the polling results are especially striking at a time when coronavirus cases, hospitalizations, and even deaths are near record highs. Writing this back in February, Cohn said, Indeed, the same polls showed that the public's concern about the virus increased during the Omicron wave. But in a telling indication of the public's attitudes toward the pandemic, greater worry about the virus has not translated to greater support for measures to stop its spread. So there's actually a lesson in economics here. And John Miltimore says the CDC's sudden and radical change to its COVID risk formula appears to be a response to that change in mood. Now, many will contend this is not how science is supposed to work, and they'd be correct. But the pandemic policies were never scientific because science can never tell us what we should or must do. The economist Ludwig von Mises observed, there is no such thing as a scientific ought, echoing a famous argument by philosopher David Hume. Science is competent to establish what is. Pandemic policies were created by public health officials and politicians. And public choice theory, a field of economics pioneered by Nobel Prize winning economist James M. Buchanan, tells us people make these decisions based on incentives, just like everyone else. Now, John Miltimore says, as he's previously explained early in the pandemic, the incentive for most public officials was clear. Take every precaution necessary to avoid being blamed for COVID deaths, regardless of the efficacy or damage of the policies. Back in 2020, he wrote, it's important to remember that politics above all else is about self-preservation. And imposing government restrictions that don't work and cause serious harms is a better, better political strategy for most politicians than telling people to act responsibly. Wash hands, maintain a prudent distance, and avoid touching your face. So if you're wondering why our world has begun to resemble a Joseph Heller or Kafka novel where orders and action seem arbitrary, senseless, and counterintuitive, look to public choice theory. Interesting. By the way, the primary change, he points out here, is the appetite for non-pharmaceutical interventions. And I think this is the good news. Americans have grown tired of them. And this, above all else, is likely what prompted the CDC to change its COVID risk formula, which virtually overnight took the vast majority of the country from a state of high community transmission to low or moderate community transmission, even though cases and mortality still remained high. So the scary color of red is now completely gone from the CDC's graphics, and in all but a handful of Democrats at Tuesday's State of the Union appeared with their faces bare indoors in a crowded Capitol building. But John Miltimore says to understand how it happened and why it happened, don't look to science. Look to public choice theory. Good stuff. There's a link in the show notes. You'll be happy if you click on it. This is... 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You or someone you know may have need of a uh, VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage. Maybe you just want to refinance your own existing home loan before interest rates go up. If you live within the state of Utah, I encourage you get it, get in touch with Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're located in St. George. You can call 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, stop by 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And, of course, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Very proud to have her as a sponsor of this show and greatly appreciate all the good that she does for Utah and the Southern Utah community. So I was talking with a friend the other day uh, for whom I have deep respect. And, and I made the comment to him, you know, your kids have a real leg up on a lot of kids in the world in that uh, they are being raised by parents who actually care about what happens and who are emulating for them what it, li- is, what it means and what it's like to live as free individuals. And, you know, of course, his response, he's, he's, a, he's a pretty humble guy. He was like, well, you know, I hope, I hope I'm doing all right. But it got me thinking about, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks, and I'm, I'm, if you're one of them, I hope you understand. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give you this virtual pat on the back. In fact, I'm trying to give you a virtual bear hug because I appreciate what you're doing so much. If you are exerting any effort to instill an appreciation and love of freedom in your kids or in your grandkids, as the case may be, You are doing a huge favor. You're planting trees under whose shade you will never sit. Does that make sense? You're doing something that that will have lasting impact in the future. And here's a great article that that helps illustrate this. This is from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Training faithful foot soldiers in the war against the elite. Now, don't let the headline throw you. This is not about militancy and, you know, raising your own little militia. It's something, something very uh, powerful, but it may make you know, some people in, in the political class nervous nonetheless. Well, no wonder we need to get control of the schools and teach the kids CRT and you know, gender confusion you know, as quickly as possible. Parents might be teaching them to stand up for themselves. Annie Holmquist says, A friend of mine recently bemoaned the fact that people only ever tell her how difficult parenting is. And since she's expecting her first child, such friendly advice isn't the most encouraging thing to hear. Unfortunately, discouraging words about raising children aren't all that out of the ordinary, a fact writer Lucy Huber addresses in a recent article for Time. Huber writes that the doom and gloom comments about parenting couldn't dampen her enthusiasm when she first announced her pregnancy, but as time went on, she pictured herself in motherhood as an exhausted heap of a person who can't even drink a cup of coffee. Now, when her son arrived, she did experience the sleepless nights and the overwhelming exhaustion that come from caring for a newborn. But she also wondered why no one told her about the many exceptionally good things that come from having children. She says, it's unlike, it's good unlike anything I've known before becoming a parent. Sometimes after my son goes to sleep, I revisit the feeling of being with him like it's a drug. I can release endorphins just by looking at a photo of him playing with a dump truck. 
Now, that testimony from a new mom is one that many singles, married couples without children, and even parents in the throes of raising little kiddos need to hear. But instead, we hear just the opposite. And after pondering this fact, she says it dawned on me why such an attitude is so prevalent in our present culture. The elites know that these children are an obstacle to their agenda. Annie Holmquist writes, G.K. Chesterton proposed that theory roughly a century ago in his work, The Superstition of Divorce. The masters of modern plutocracy know what they are about, he wrote. A very profound and precise instinct has led them to single out the human household as the chief obstacle to their inhuman progress. Now, why is the family in the crosshairs of the, the elites, Annie Holmquist asks? Because it gets in the way of their quest for control. Without the family, we are helpless before the state, which is, in our modern case, the servile state. To use a military metaphor, the family is the only formation in which the charge of the rich can be repulsed. It is a force that forms twos, as soldiers form fours, and in every peasant country has stood in the square house on the square plot of land as the infantry have stood in squares against cavalry. Now, Chesterton goes on to say that it is, in, it is found in practice that the domestic citizen can stand a siege even by the state because he has those who will stand by him through thick and thin, especially thin. In other words, the family is the littlest platoon, fighting against the globalist ideology that threatens to make every individual a mindless automaton. She says, unfortunately, in recent decades, the globalist elite have been pretty effective at breaking up this little platoon, this last line of defense. For example, the introduction of personal electronic devices which isolate individuals and promise virtual gratification for all of their appetites, the push to divide women's attention between home and the workforce, the ease of divorce, the glorification of transgenderism and homosexuality which lead to further isolation and infertility, the mass messaging that children are a burden, all of these things are devices used by the elite to break down the traditional family which could stand against the onslaught of the servile state. Now, birth rates are already dropping, so those who want to advance the agenda of today's globalist elite need only continue the trend of avoiding family formation and childbearing themselves, while discouraging it in others. But Annie Holmquist says, for those, however, who want to fight the downward trend toward the servile state, forming families and having children, not just one or two, but many, is the best way to have the war, to wage the war, rather. <clears throat> now, she says the elites would be aghast at such a suggestion. After all, more children will only serve to make climate change worse, they claim. But she says what the elites don't tell you is that children give you a reason to live and hope for the future. They are a source of laughter in dark days and a source of strength and support as they grow older. They give you a reason to fight in an increasingly dark world. And finally, they provide bright little minds trainable to stand for truth and right and to make a difference in our society. A large family that loves one another by these means forms a sturdy battle formation indeed. I hope you don't take exception to the, you know, martial language that she's using here. But I agree entirely with what, what she's saying. And in fact, I want to take it just one step in a, in a slightly different direction. If you look around you right now and you perceive that, wow, there are some dark storm clouds gathering on many different levels, economically, spiritually, um, culturally, 
we have some really scary-looking clouds coalescing around our nation right now. I'm going to suggest to you that the, the surest refuge in times of crisis is going to be found in family. Now, what do I base this on? What, what clear scientific evidence do I have? How can I empirically demonstrate it for you? I, I don't know. I can just tell you from, uh, from my own experience of, you know, uh, yeah, I'm a dad and, you know, this is great and I'm enjoying raising my kids to really finding purpose in life. And I don't remember exactly when that came, but my kids were a big part of uh, finding that purpose. And um, how can I say this? Maybe I'll just, just put it out there. It made me get serious about the world in which I live. When my first child arrived, when she was born, um, suddenly I felt real gravity as to you have a responsibility to raise this child, to provide and protect, provide for and to protect her and to make sure that she has a fighting chance in a world that is, uh, you know, as quick as it can, going to do everything it can to suck the light out of her soul. I don't know, maybe that's kind of a dark realization. You know, it, it followed closely on the realization that, oh my gosh, I'm a dad and, you know, tears of joy. I'd never, I never expected that would, that would be the reaction. But, but it's where, that's where I, I really got serious about, you know what? I can't just be carried with the current at this point. I've got to have a clear direction for her sake and for her siblings. And yeah, I've done my part to overpopulate the world. We've got six kids. Yeah. I know I'm I'm a I'm a sandbagger by Utah standards. <laughs> my my friends with eight and ten kids are looking at me going, yeah, well those are rookie numbers, but uh, we'll we'll allow it for now. But there is something to be said, as Annie Holmquist points out here, when you are focusing your attention on on helping to build the generation that is following in your footsteps. This doesn't mean, by the way, that they're marching in lockstep with you and they only parrot exactly what you've said and basically you've created more little mindless automatons. It's something much nobler. They may still disagree. They may still go their own way, but they're, they're going to have a fighting chance against forces that will be trying from, from sun up to sundown, round the clock, to separate them from their birthright as a free individual. And that's something that will carry on through the generations. So, yeah, it involves some some work. It involves uh, some risk, maybe even a little bit of heartache. But it's absolutely worth it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Thanks again for joining us for this uh, chance to revel in wrong think at this breathtaking point of inspiration (laughs) or wherever you happen to be catching the show. I'm glad that uh, you are part of uh, our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And I think uh, I think it should be a badge of courage. I'm I'm actually I'm very serious about this. I I have uh, I have my uh, wrong thinker mugs. And it's just the show logo, Revel, Revel in Wrong Think, with, with the, the, the logo that my daughter created of my bearded image. 
But uh, I, I'm really serious about I want to I want to talk with Eric and Teresa over at uh, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George. Um, it's I, I really think with summer coming, it's time that we put some uh, wrong thinker ball caps out there on the market. So I don't know if that would be of interest. Shoot me an email or shoot me a message if, if it's something that would interest you, because I I have a hunch this could be the fashion statement of summer. Not because it's me, but just because the idea is, you know what, we need to be engaging in more wrong think. And to help illustrate the need for wrong think, I want to share with you an article from Gary Barnett about uh, pushing back against the official propaganda that's being directed at us, you know, 24-7. He says the power of propaganda, meaning state control of the press and media, um, is going to be the death knell of freedom. And he starts with a quote from Evita Ochel. Until you realize how easy it is for your mind to be manipulated, you remain the puppet of someone else's game. Gary Barnett says, once again, black is white and white is black. We're living in a state-created inversion. The press, as has been noted in this country and others since the beginning, was charged with the noble role of informing the people about what is actually going on around them. The freedom of the press has been lauded as necessary for any free society to exist. And he says America's own so-called Bill of Rights in the Third Amendment states that Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Actually, this is the First Amendment. Sorry, Gary, but that's a typo. It's the First Amendment that says Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, but all government guarantees, as has been exposed, are as worthless as the paper on which they're printed. Now, he says if all this is true, then why is the entirety of mainstream and major press and media so corrupt, dishonest, colluding, state-supporting, evil, and essentially controlled by the CIA? Why are virtually all news reporting entities owned by the same small group of individuals and companies or the state itself? And why is most all the reporting just propaganda, regardless of the venue? He says the only sane position to take in this day and age is to understand that every word coming from the whores in the press, the politicians, and the media are absolute lies. Everything should be considered a falsehood and should be ignored until and unless it is completely verified and supported by fact. He says, we are living in madness. We are living in total absurdity. There is no other way to explain our current situation. So why does the bulk of society, not just in this country, but around the world, still cling to every word coming from the state and its minions in the press and media. Why do people believe whatever they're told to believe without any benefit of facts or logic, even to the point of voluntarily destroying their own life's work, their families and loved ones, their communities, and their very souls? Can this ever be legitimately explained? Well, here's his take at it, his take on it, rather, and he says all this boils down to the sad truth that the people at large desire a master-slave relationship in order to function, without putting forth the effort necessary to live as free men. Now, this, of course, is pathetic, but it is a fact of life in modern times. Because of this, independ- because of this dependent nature, rather, humanity is facing hell on earth and even possible extinction. That's quite a price to pay for being too lazy, stupid, and gullible to function as responsible individuals. Instead of relying on one's own abilities, one's own moral compass, Most rely on government to tell them how to act, how to think, what to believe, what not to believe, and what to condemn or accept. 
One major example of this current behavior is brutally evident and is a very dangerous risk to all. And that is the plotted and planned U.S., NATO, Russia, and Ukraine debacle playing out in front of us. Gary Barnett says there are no good guys here, only evil tyrants and government stooges without the capability to see the fatal risk in the games they play. Or any soul to care about the outcome. Of course, the masses are tricked by their masters and media into picking a side, and as is always the case, another nefarious coup is turned into one of each side hating the other, each supporting the evil intent of both, without the ability to ascertain the truth, which is that they are being played as fools by by those holding power over them. And once sides are taken, the ability to control all increases dramatically, just as was planned all along by the state actors. So in this case, those siding with the West against Russia scream for protection and war to protect poor, innocent Ukraine, a country steeped in total corruption and controlled by the U.S. through a puppet put in power by the same U.S. in 2014. Those siding with Russia, especially in the alternative media, due to U.S. aggression against them for decades, falsely assume that Putin is some sort of innocent patriot who's only prosecuting a war that he said he would never do, just because he was pushed to the limit by the U.S. and NATO and had to protect his country. Now, this is total nonsense, says Gary Barnett. The complete idiocy of both sides is beyond astounding. The proletariat hordes are doing exactly as they were coached to do by their state masters, while the mainstream and much of the alternative media take sides in a no-win contest of ignorance and planned chaos. Now, Barnett says U.S. aggression, brutality, corruption, warmongering, arrogant interference in other countries, and mass murder are evident and have been going on for nearly the entirety of its existence. But what about Putin and his Russian government? Putin has a very checkered background from his time in the KGB to his political rise with support from the U.S., his criminal methods to gain power, and his treatment of those opposing him. He, like the rest of the world's rulers, was fully engaged in terror against the Russian people concerning the fake virus pandemic labeled as COVID. No tracking system for deaths from vaccine is allowed by the Russian government, and that website was completely shut down. Putin praised AstraZeneca and signed a fast-track deal to get poisonous bioweapon injections into the population, no different than the evil Trump and Biden. He set up biometric tracking and tagging of school children through a corrupt banking system with strong ties to the World Economic Forum, all under the guise of child safety. The same bank is also in charge of launching state-sponsored digital cryptocurrency, and with the likes of J.P. Morgan, so as to control the currency and monetary system of Russia. Now, this is just an extremely brief list of some of the things done with or by, by or with the blessing of Putin, who is no innocent saint, but a pure ruling globalist not different than all the others. He's likely no better or worse than the rest of the globalist cabal, but in this arena, all are evil. To take sides with any of the ruling class is not only a terrible and possible fatal mistake, but one that guarantees siding with malevolent monsters whose own ambitions always run completely counter to the best interests of the people. In the midst of all this, the falsely claimed scourge of the earth called COVID-19 that was said to threaten every man, woman, and child on this planet temporarily disappeared overnight in favor of the next media narrative, and this without a shred of explanation or comment. At the same time, economic turmoil in the realm of major monetary disruption was an obvious play to continue the drive to eliminate cash and privacy 
in order for central bank control of currency. And this continued plot is now fully underway. So here's the big question. What will be the next narrative change? What new supposed threat will emerge when another one has, when this one rather, has played out its use? There will always be another emergency, another threat, another false flag waiting to be released by the powerful globalists and their ilk. Will it be war? Another fake virus? A monetary collapse? A bioweapon release? A targeted nuclear attack? A bogus climate change disaster? Another warning that China may side with Russia? Or another U.S.-NATO plot meant to stoke more unrest and fear among the commoners? As long as people continue to blindly obey and believe the propaganda, there will always be another threat, another emergency, another plot, or another scam meant to subdue and control them. And he finishes with a quote from Mehmet Murat Ildan. One of the greatest responsibilities for the people in our time is to accept everything that he hears in the pro-government media as a lie and to investigate the truth from independent sources personally. Well, that kind of sounds like what we're trying to do, right? One of the greatest responsibilities for the people of our time is to accept everything that he hears from pro-government media as a lie and to investigate the truth from independent sources personally. Yes. Yes, I do do believe that I agree with that completely. And I'm grateful to be a part of your effort to investigate the truth from independent sources personally. It is my privilege and my honor to get to share some of those sources with you. So let me wish you Godspeed as we move forward. And again, speak the truth. It doesn't matter if your voice is shaking. Speak the truth and shine that light into the darkness. This is The Brian Hyde Show.